Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest is, you ready for this, a humanistic psychologist exploring the depths of human potential. How's that for a great introduction? He's a psychologist. His name is Scott Barry Kaufman, his PhD, but he teaches about intelligence, creativity, and well-being at Columbia, NYU, and UPenn, which is the best of those three schools, hands down. In fact, it's completely proven, uh, and it's also better than Harvard and Stanford, in case you guys are wondering. Anyway, um, I might or might not be from that same school. What he did that was really interesting and why he's on the show today is that he discovered Abraham Maslow's unfinished theory of transcendence, the one you didn't hear about. It was in unpublished journals and lectures and essays, and he said, wait a minute, I'm working on the same kind of stuff. If you guys don't know who Maslow is, he developed the hierarchy of human needs. So Scott dug into the theory and updated it with seven decades of science that's happened since Abraham Maslow was out there. And that's what's in his new book, which is called The New Science of Self-Actualization, and the main title is Transcend. So you want to know about attachment, connection, creativity, love, and purpose? Well, it turns out there's a bit of knowledge in the interview today. Scott, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thanks for having me here. You're also a, an old school podcaster like me. I mean, we, we go way back in the day. You've been running the psychology podcast since 2014. Feels like an ancient uh, podcast at this point, yeah. And right after you launched your podcast... Um, who was it? It was Business Insider called you one of 50 groundbreaking scientists changing the way we see the world. Did that give you a big ego? No, I think I probably already had a big ego already. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing funnier than asking psychology people about egos because you can see like the wheels turning. I, I just love doing that. Oh, we can talk all day long about e about the ego and the, dif the difference between the ego and having a strong sense of self. Um, I think... Yeah, so just to answer your question, I mean, I already felt like I was pretty self-confident at that point, but it made me feel good. It definitely made me feel good. You're also, just to, to fluff your ego a little bit more, you've written nine books, which is uh, which is pretty epic, and now you're a full professor at Columbia. So you, you've, you've really dug deep on the psychology side. Why do you write so many books? I love writing. I mean, I feel like I have a writer's soul. I like if, if I had to like identify what my soul is, it feels like a right. Like I've always enjoyed it. When I was a little kid, I used to do a lot of creative writing. I uh, used to always imagine um, different worlds and and things. And yeah, I, I enjoy it. I just I just really enjoy um, public. I also enjoy public science communication, and um, felt like writing peer-reviewed scientific papers, which I still do from time to time. But uh, when I was really heavy in writing scientific peer-reviewed papers and you put your heart and soul into this study and then you write it up and then you get all these reviews from your colleagues saying how much it sucks. And then even if it does get accepted, <laughs> you wait four years for it to get published. By that time, you don't even care about the paper anymore. But then when it does come out, you're excited if one person reads it. So I decided, you know what? Books are a much quicker route to making an impact on the world. I've talked to a few academics who publish professionally uh, for, you know, for everyone to read. And sometimes they get looked down on by their colleagues. Like, oh, well, you didn't do the, like the, the self-flagellation academic publishing route. Like somehow you're less relevant as an academic. Do you, did you get flack for just saying, look, I'm going to take my research directly to people who could benefit from it or? I did. Has, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was like a rebel in grad school. 
because uh, so Psychology Today blogs just started right. then, 2008. Um, and I get, you know, call from one of the editors there. They're like, hey, you know, would you like to be one of our first bloggers? And I just, that lit me up and I started, I started writing blog posts about intelligence and creativity. My advisor, you know, took me aside. I was like, you know, this ain't going to get you, well, isn't, I should say, he, this isn't going to get you tenure, you know, this isn't going to get you tenure. Um, you really need to rethink what you're doing with your life. And I said, I did rethink what I'm doing with my life and I'm not going into academia. <laughs> <laughs> but you did go into academia, right? Well, you know, I, I I didn't I never did the um tenure route. So I've always just right after grad school and from, from that point forward, I, I took off so for instance, I ran the Imagination Institute at Penn with Martin Selgeman, who is uh, the founder of the field of positive psychology. Yeah. And I mean that's an alternative route. Like I wasn't actually in academic like proper academia, you know, with like, you know, tenure track and papers. Instead, it was a lot more fun. Marty and I held all these imagination retreats and we we sought out the most imaginative minds on the planet and across these various fields. And we brought them to Penn for a weekend and we scanned their brains and we, we did all this other stuff. It's it just more fun. <laughs> Yet you still uh, succeeded academically. And you, you also, your area of interest, it seems like if I was to, to map you out, some sort of a Venn diagram. I mean, clearly intelligence is at the beginning, but you talk about the psychology of created writing and mating intelligence. So <laughs> is it is intelligence, creativity, or mating like at the center of your of your Venn diagram? Well, honestly, the mating thing, that was just a phase I went through. <laughs> <laughs> you got it out that, of your system. <laughs> yeah, that's like if, if if you look at all my books and my whole body, life's work, that's the one stain on my career. <laughs> that was the outlier book, to be honest. I could have was... brought that out. But you, you write about greatness. I, I mean, you're you're circling the the realms of human performance that I'm most interested in. Yeah. Um, but human I potential. human yeah. potential. In fact, I have this thing called the Human Potential Institute. That's my coaching uh, group with, with about a thousand coaches. So human potentials is at the center, and those are all in human thing. potential. Yeah, I think that's my thing. What is the craziest thing that humans are capable of that people don't know about? don't know about holy cow what a question that is because i you know you know people i, I you know, and this may sound really banal but i i wrote once uh i was writing like a tweet or something i said one of the most profound realizations one could have is that you can feel a certain way um and you're allowed to say nah i'm good that, that's what the tweet said. And, you know, it's so basically the point there, it it, it almost sounds it, it's like a lot of people don't realize that they can actually divorce their mind, you know, and and and, uh, and have a lot more uh, psychological free will. Now, whether or not we have, you know, big bang level free will, it's a whole different discussion we need to do under some influences. But whether or not, you know, we have psychological free will, I think that's I think we have a lot more psychological free will than we realize. And sometimes I think it's an act of craziness to exert it. Wow. So it's the ability to lie about our internal state to others or to ourselves? Not to lie, but to um, not listen to ourselves. To ignore ourselves. To have that choice, at least that freedom. Sometimes we want to obviously listen to ourselves, but to have that freedom, to have that flexibility 
is something we often uh, we don't even realize we have that flexibility. Wow. Oh, you mean I didn't have to um, do that compulsive thing that I do every Tuesday at four o'clock? You know? Whoa, no, I didn't. <laughs> That's cool. That's yeah. not what I would have expected. I was hoping you were going to say levitating or something. Oh yeah. I, I almost wish I could have come on the spot with something more creative, but no, that, that's honest. actually really, it's really perceptive, but it's because you study you know, psychology and human potential like you do. Um, I was also really intrigued um, in that you talk about the stuff that Maslow didn't finish mm. and he just died in the middle of it or, or kind of give me a little bit of background on that. He did die in the middle of it. And just in the past couple years of his life, he was working on a whole theory of new theory of transcendence. He had stated at a conference, or not a conference, at a talk at a church, um, a Unitarian church in San Francisco. He gave this big talk, The Farther Reaches of Human Nature. I listened to the lecture recording of it. It was a very transcendent experience for me to listen to the lecture recording of it. And he says, you know, above self-actualization, once we have, well, once we have our basic needs met, then we can have our self-actualizing needs met. But for the very fortunate who have those needs met to a certain uh, satisfactory degree, well, we can start to reach this level of transcendence. Um, not, I don't know if you use the word level because life is not like a video game, you know, where you get these different levels. But you know, we can, we can, we can, we can harness this transcendence in our lives, and and we can be motivated by we call it what he called the B values, uh, the values of pure being, the, the the values in life that you don't engage in them and you don't fuse and you're not one with them because you want something else. You're happy just in and of itself to, you know, get intrinsic joy from uh, seeking justice in the way you get intrinsic joy from beauty, more beauty in the world, more meaning in the world um, from these peak experiences, these most wondrous experiences of life that life can bring us. So yeah, he was working this whole, whole new theory. Then he died of a heart attack at 62. Heart attacks are really annoying. Yeah, they suck. I've I've pretty much decided that the the first step to living a long time is not dying. It's I think that's true. <laughs> it's like we're, we're so profound with each other here, man. No, well, it's funny because like sometimes like some people say things that they're like I think, and then you can have a debate, and there's an opinion. You know, for this one, there's no debate here. <laughs> I, it, I agree. It's funny though because some people are like oh, I'm not going to age, and like you should watch your cardiovascular risk because it's that or cancer, Alzheimer's, or diabetes is going to get you if you're playing the odds. So maybe you should dodge those bullets first in, in your hierarchy of needs uh, climbing. Uh, it, it seems like like those are the the low hanging fruit. So it's always really frustrating to me when one of the big four takes out a luminary, uh, and you're like, you know, it would have not been very difficult to have avoided that. You know, it was it was usually bad knowledge and sometimes bad psychology uh, that drives it. But usually people are generally doing what they think is the right thing. It's just the wrong thing, right? And then sometimes people are self sabotaging. Self-sabotaging. Yeah, I think that's actually probably more common. The self-sabotaging. I think that, the, you know, the human will is um, a very fickle thing. Never quite put it that way, but it's true. Yeah, and it's you know when the the pizza's in front of you, like why do I have a piece of pizza in my hand? Why is it moving towards my mouth? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm asking you because you're a psychologist. Oh, thanks, because I mean pizza right <laughs> no, now. I, wasn't <laughs> I just did that to you, but but what is the mechanism yeah. there? inside us that makes us like reach for stuff that we know at some level isn't really a good choice. 
well, you know, so humans are cybernetic systems. I'll just get really into the nerdy aspect of this. So humans are cybernetic systems, uh, just like a thermodynamic system is a cybernetic system. There's no, there's no difference in terms of our understanding of, of goals and, uh, and, and how goals work. But the interesting thing about humans is that we have evolutionary goals and we also have goals that we set in our own lives that have no evolutionary history. And so what we have is this hodgepodge of, um, of conflicting goals going on within us. We have, if you just think about the domain of romantic relationships, it is miraculous if a marriage works. You know, you have uh, the evolutionary evolved drives of um, somehow all having to come together in a harmonious way. Lust, caregiving, romantic passion. Um, I don't know if I said, uh, yeah, I said caregiving. Romantic passion, um, uh, a secure att- attachment. All these things come apart in different ways and evolve for different reasons across the course of human evolution. Why did you say lust three times? Because <laughs> no, that's more of a memory issue, not a, not a, <laughs> not a Freudian. I know, I know story. you're joking. I, I, I think if you're hinting it's a Freudian thing, I think it's actually just more just, I'm, I'm getting old. <laughs> I'm getting old. <laughs> My memory ain't what it used to be. Psychology <laughs> jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. No, I, I mean, I love it. Um, yeah, so it, to me, it's miraculous when, when you get a, an integrated, harmonious human, um, mm-hmm. because like, like turtles don't have this issue, you know, like orangutans don't sit there thinking, how can I become a harmonious, integrated orangutan, you know? But for the human that can have that wisdom and foresight and consciousness to create a, and design a life that allows them to somehow um, take this hodgepodge and, and be a whole operating harmonious unit, I think that's a mir- miraculous, quite frankly. It, it is miraculous. And the idea of you know evolutionary drivers ended up becoming more and more a part of my work as a as a biohacker over time. And I want to go through Maslow's hierarchy of needs and then how you've added transcendence on top based on his original work. And then I want to run my theory past it. And then I want you to just blow it up with a <laughs> professor's ability to blow things up and tell me the holes in it or whether whether it matches as well as some people say, because you're a real expert on this. So walk our listeners through the basic hierarchy of needs. A lot of us remember it from seventh grade, but probably not accurately. Traditional way it's taught is usually you see a pyramid and at the bottom of uh, this this pyramid, at the base, I should say, you should you get physiological needs, food, shelter, water, important. And then right above that um, are okay. Well, if we get our physiological needs met, then we can start to really focus on safety in a priority kind of way. Um, if our safety needs are met, we feel pretty safe and secure. We have love, what Maslow called love and belonging needs, um, connection, um, intimacy with others. If that's met to a certain degree, then in terms of priority of a hierarchy, we have the need for esteem, which Maslow said is the esteem from others as well as self-esteem. So both kind of forms of esteem. And if we can have those, what he, he called all those things I just mentioned, basic needs, if we can have those basic needs met, then we can put our all and, and our entire being into the need for self-actualization, which is becoming whatever, uh, whatever we're most uniquely capable of becoming in life. So that's how it's traditionally presented. If you look on the internet, there are memes of it with toilet paper at the bottom, you know, during the COVID era um, of, as the most pressing need. <laughs> uh, you also see Wi-Fi. I've seen for the past five, six years, I saw a lot of memes going with Wi-Fi at the bottom. 
you see all sorts of things. You see like the hierarchy, the the Maslow's hierarchy of like constructive agreement, disagreement, and then you. I've seen other. So I've seen people just use that whole framework. The fascinating thing that most people don't realize is that Maslow never drew a pyramid. Oh, that's funny. There's no. I looked through like almost every published thing, probably every published thing that Maslow ever ever and unpublished, and. I was like, "There's no where's the pyramid?" And then um, Todd Bridgman and his colleagues came out with this really cool uh, paper tracing the origin of it and 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 discovered where it actually started. The whole thing started started with some management consultants in the '60s who uh, it was first a step ladder before it became a pyramid, and then in the step ladder of needs, um, there was the man with the uh, the top with a flagpole. You know, the self it was the self realized man. You know, so, so wow. That, so, yeah. So there you go. That that's it betrayed the spirit of Maslow. The whole pyramid. I I I don't think he would have liked a pyramid to represent his needs. I'd like to think what I, how I reimagined it. Uh, my Kaufman sailboat is uh, more in line with what uh, Maslow's spirit of it. What is the sailboat? How does that work? I did just beg that question, didn't I? <laughs> well, so. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you want to pick up what I just threw down there? Uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, Maslow's sailboat, you know, you have, uh, no, it's Kaufman, sorry, Kaufman's sailboat. Um, my sailboat. There we go there. Oh, we go. There we go. Well, I created the sailboat. Um, <laughs> but I, but here's why I think it's a better, a better depiction of the spirit of Maslow. I did, I did want to give my brother, man, Abraham Maslow, some credit. Uh, I I wanted to um to to restore the whole vision he had for human development. So human development, I think, is more of like a experience um, through the vast unknown. We never know when the when the storm is going to come, when the waves are going to come crashing down on us. But uh, we need at least to have no holes in our boat. So we need to have a secure, firm boat um, with our basic needs uh, met. To a certain degree, we don't have severe holes, deficiencies where we're motivated by the deficiencies. But once our boat is secure, we still aren't aren't going anywhere unless we open up the sail and we're vulnerable to the winds. You know, we're vulnerable to uh, just the un- the unknown of life. You know, we still go in our most purposeful direction with a spirit of exploration and love. Um, you know, not knowing at any time when when that wave may come crashing down, not on us, but all the boats that were all going in their own purposeful direction at the same time. Now, all of a sudden, we realize we're all in the same sea together, you know. So I think the metaphor of the sailboat works better and allows us to talk more about um, the dialectical between security and growth uh, or defense and growth. Um, more so than get so stuck on this precise ordering of needs like as depicted in the pyramid. What What do you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have to be vulnerable to grow? Oh, well, now that's a whole topic that I just am obsessed with lately. Uh, I, I can't believe you just asked me that. It's like, <laughs> well, I mean, it, you, you said that in I your words, it. kind of, yeah. but it, it feels like you can grow if all you are is defending, but you just like grow bigger walls. So, so vulnerability is a really big thing. I, I had to learn how to consciously be vulnerable so I could um, be who I am today. Oh, that's this is on my mind so much right now. I just can't believe you, 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 you. Uh, that that is the sliver of what I said that you picked up on. You're you're an astute astute human. Um, so the um, I think there's become a cult of vulnerability, quite frankly, yeah. and I'm I've been willing to push back on it lately because I as I go in great detail in my book on the self esteem chapter, there's there's a, a a thing that I've been studying lately called vulnerable narcissism. <laughs> oh, uh, <no. laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I, I've published papers on this topic. Vulnerability signaling. It's like virtue signaling. Is that what we're saying here? What it is is it's um you know you think because you've suffered that you're entitled. It's entitlement because you've suffered as opposed to entitlement because you think you're great. So grandiose, grandiose narcissism is the kind that has, you normally think of when you think narcissism, you think like chest, for politics, chest thumping, you know, like, um, I'm great, you know, um, but, uh, therefore I'm entitled to all special privileges because I'm the best, but right. we've studied this really interesting, um, uh, not as well known, uh, version flavor. It's a more introverted flavor of, of, uh, of narcissism, a more vulnerable, more vulnerable form where, you know, that's the kind of person that they lay in their bed all day. And, um, yeah, what, <laughs> why is that person succeeding? And I'm not, you know, there's a lot of resentment, you know, um, it, it's a, a victim lot, mindset. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I'm entitled because I'm a victim. Okay. Yeah. Basically. It, yeah. Is that, am, am I? Yeah. Saying yeah. the same kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. But I like that you're putting in the, because I've been vulnerable, because I've been harmed, therefore, you know, I deserve this. It, it, wow. I never thought of it as being a form of narcissism, but it's totally obvious when you said that. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm working on a, that might be my next book actually. Yeah. I'm just like fascinated with this, with this topic. Um, and, and I'm Please write that book. That That is something cool. that needs to exist awesome. because I, I have, I have seen that now because I, I get to work with you know, a lot of people uh, mm -hmm. in my different companies and yeah, there's a, a certain mindset sometimes, and it is, they behave exactly like narcissists, like without self-awareness. When you're stuck in that loop, exactly the same as someone who's like, I'm the world's best, which is why I can't see my own mistakes, right? Wow. It's self-absorption. I, I can't wait to read that book. Yeah. Wow. Cool, man. Cool, cool. Well, um, I would be honored to come back to talk to you at any point uh, about that um, in the future. But sure. yeah, no, it's um, it's it's a fascinating, this whole idea, um, you know, because I, I used to be fully on the Brene Brown train, you know, I was like vulnerability. Yes. Like sensitivity. And I wrote, I wrote books on this, you know, wired, my book wired to create was all about how sensitivity and creativity are linked. But then I think what happens with these kind of things is the pendulum can swing too much in a particular direction where suddenly you're like shamed if you're not being vulnerable, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, 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 and if you, and if you say anything like, no, actually I feel pretty confident. Like you're viewed as evil. Yeah, you know, if, or you entitled know, or something, or right? There's something where things have flipped around where we don't empower people to want to be um, uh, have agency now. We empower people to be a victim. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes a lot of sense. I, I'm seeing yeah. it as, as a major trend. Yeah. And and the bottom line is the people I've come to respect the most, uh, have having interviewed, we're, we're pushing almost a thousand um, coming up here this year. Mm. Um, the people who have like suffered greatly and learned and stepped out of it and become leaders. In fact, it, it's one of the things I, I studied in one of my books about 500 people been on the show to find the commonalities um, of the things that they thought were most important. And yeah, it, it's that, okay, a lot of them really went through near death experiences, you know, great trauma and shame and whatever else in their life, and then picked themselves up, worked their asses off, learned and don't identify with that as in it's something that happened. And it, it almost feels like that mindset is out of vogue right now. It's very out of vogue. And, and uh, we don't need to go into great detail about this, but I, I mean, I, I have a story. I, I was in special education as a kid. So like this, all these accolades and things you mentioned about me were not 
no one predicted it. Once I, where the heck did that were, come from? Were you from? in the gifted program or the other no, side? No, no, the opposite. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I had um, I had an auditory disability. It was uh, hard for me to process things in real time when I, I was had young. one of those too. By the way, auditory yeah, processing. I'm like high five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, right. I had central auditory processing disorder. Is the is the official name of what I had, and it took me a couple mil extra milliseconds to just process in real time. So they thought I was stupid, and um, and. And for a while, I kept that as the core to my identity. So that was like, you know, mm. I am, hi, I'm Scott, and I was in special as a child. I would tell that story, you know, every keynote speech I would give, that's my big story, you know, like, and I want to tell everyone how I was in special ed. And then there became a point in the past uh, couple years where I started to rethink all of this, and I started to rethink narratives, I started to rethink the arc of my life and and realize that I just don't want to keep telling that story anymore. Um, you know, for for lots of for lots of reasons, um, I'd rather lead with who I am today. You know, and and it almost didn't dawn on me for many years. You mean I'm allowed to to lead with what I'm do who I am right now? You know, and it it, it was a it was a realization for me that, that I, it was mind blowing. You do have some pretty impressive credentials, to be honest. I mean, you, you look at all the different stuff you've worked on, different uh, things. So you, you can totally lead with that. And there Thank you go. You. you know, you're an author and a teacher and professor, and, and there's that. Um, they do say, though, that people who choose to study psychology usually are trying to deal with their own problems first, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, who says that? <laughs> I never heard that before. <laughs> Everyone who's ever talked to a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> they say, is this what you think, Dave? <laughs> Uh, no, I've had many psychologists that I've gone to see tell me that. <laughs> so, <laughs> what is a research is me search. I know, you know, people say all the time. I, I really that's that's what did uh, spur me to want to study intelligence, um, and that was my original topic that I studied in my field was intelligence, um, when, like IQ testing and all that. And um, yeah, that definitely was me search, and um, and then I, I I started to identify some aspects of vulnerable narcissism. Um, in my 20s, I think, wow, in my 20s, I was really vulnerably narcissistic. Holy cow. And, you know, just, just like just realizing some of this stuff has been just so eye opening for me. And I kind of want to, I just not kind of, I really want to help others like, re, like identify the same patterns. I, I think in the self help world, and I'd love to get your thoughts about this, like uh, in the self help world, there's so much of like, you are a badass. Like, you're you're great. You know, um, you know. Don't listen to anyone. Don't listen to haters. You're amazing. And, and there's not as much like identify the narcissistic characteristics within yourself. Um, identify the different ways you're self sabotaging yourself and how your self hate and pity, instead of being reframed as you're awesome, might actually be hindering your growth ultimately. Okay. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, I dare you to name your next book. What if you actually suck? Yeah, well, that's the, that's what I'm saying is like, I would love to do that. <laughs> that's a great title for a book. <laughs> like, what if Jensen Sire would probably come up and kick your ass? She's the author yeah. of You're a Badass, Oh, right? yeah. And I didn't, I don't mean to target anyone in particular. No, no, but, said, but, your, but yeah. your point is that the rah-rah, yeah. I've seen this too, even in the, the kind of, in the empowerment movement, it, it's like, um, and I'm not calling any, any particular friend out on this, but it's like, oh, we're going to teach you you know, to, to be an expert in something or, or to be an influencer. And it's like, well, step one, acquire something worthy of sharing that you can use with your influence. Right. And, yeah. and it's, if you're going after fame, uh, because you're supposed to, or you think it's a way to make money, fame sucks. Um, <laughs> it, it actually is a huge amount of work. 
uh, needs to do more it. emails. Uh, more emails, more all kinds of pressures. And yeah, you can use it to do good. But if you're just going after it just because you want to feel good about yourself, like, trust me, just go to a therapist. It's way less work <laughs> than trying to get well-known. It's not worth it. <laughs> it's so true. I, I, I really like you, man. I really like you. This is the first time I've ever talked to you. So I feel like um, I like your vibe um, for whatever that Thanks. looks worth. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking because um, a lot of people who want to be famous, there's a fascinating phenomenon that happens. What it's really, that's not really what they wanted. There was another need that was unfulfilled, but they thought that would fulfill that what they really wanted. And then when they, when they eventually get what they uh, really want, like, uh, like uh, they get, they find fall in love, for instance, or they find someone who they have an intimate connection with or there, or uh, what other deeply unfulfilled need is really met. They suddenly don't care as much about the fame. I think that's so interesting. such an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, in in my book, I, I lay out these principles of why we should strive for growth, not happiness. You know, or strive for meaning. Uh, so, meaning and happiness are two different uh, dissociable things in the psychological literature. And all the research I've seen shows that happiness comes for the ride of meaning. It's like an epiphenomenon, whereas um, you can be um, happy in, in the sense like you you report high life satisfaction or you have positive emotions but feel spiritually empty, feel um, uh, deeply unfulfilled. That's why I'm really interested in, in basic needs and need and, uh, and whole self-fulfillment. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Do you think we're going to get to the point where we can just have a, a survey and like you fill out these hundred questions and we're going to be able to exactly know uh, where in, you know, Kaufman's sailboat of needs uh, you're lacking and which, you know, which sail needs more rigging or whatever the right analogy is. I mean, are, are we going to be able to quantify this and be like, oh, you're missing meaning in your life. So, you know, take this, you know, do take this drug and, and it'll tell you your purpose in life. And, you know, like, can we, can we patch the holes, identify the weaknesses? Well, I, I dare I say, I, I, I do have a test, free test you could take right now and find out your self-actualization score. <laughs> All right. Tell, tell me, where, where do I go? Self-actualization test.com. Who would have thought? What a, what a creative <laughs> URL. I mean, to respond to that, I can be like, well, you can actually take the test. That was a pretty, hmm, we're having trouble finding oh, that Okay, selfactualizationtests.com. With an S. Let's try that. I'm trying this in real time with you. Yes, with an S. And uh, the first one, characteristics of self-actualization scale. Oh, it's got a picture of an orange flower. All right, orange is a good color. So, Okay. So you actually go down there somewhere on that web. So page. so we can discuss the various tests that are. That oh, I see. Here. All of those are ones that you actually let people do right there. Yes, I created all these tests, and so I created the cool. dark side of the force. It actually can quantify whether or not you're in the light or the dark side of the force. 
um, from the Star Wars metaphor, but I actually scientifically validated the light versus dark triad scale. So you can, uh, that might actually be more interesting to you. <laughs> You're the biggest nerd ever. Oh, no. About? Oh, yeah. I just wrote an article for Scientific American on that. Uh, the, the Science of Nerdiness is the title of it. I, can, um, can you read my coffee, mug? Come to the nerd side. Oh, my God. I love it. I love it. Oh, my God. Can I take a picture? <laughs> sure. My mug oh, says, come to the nerd side. We have pie, and it's the character for oh pie. That is amazing. I that just happened I need, to be on my desk. I need to get that mug. Um, <laughs> I need to get that mug. No, I want to empower people to to embrace their nerdy side. And I think that it's – I actually think that there's like a stigma against it um, when you try to have like intellectual discussion. Like people are like, oh, I feel like you're wrong. And then you're like, well, can we discuss it from like a high-level intellectual you know, point of view? And then they're like, you're evil. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? You all know I'm not because I took this card. Okay, so are you on the dark side or the light side according to your own research? No, I'm pretty, I'm pretty high on the, the light track triad because um the there the facets of the light triad are things like faith in humanity i mean i'm a humanistic psychologist i would be a real i would be really um uh what's the word i'm looking for counter um hypocritical hypocritical if i wasn't <laughs> on the light side but, i love humanism but most people don't know what it is what is humanism yeah. well so here's here's something else i think humanistic psychology is not the same thing as humanism Ooh. um so, uh, well, I mean, humanism, you know, um, could be a, considered a whole school of philosophical thought, but I'm talking about humanistic psychology, which um, has as its goal the understanding of the whole human and how we, um, what it means to live an experientially alive life, uh, one that's full of meaning, purpose, and um, and connection with others, and um, to kind of feel like you're at your full potential of of as as a human. You know, you're fully human. To me, that that's that's what I mean by I'm a humanistic psychologist. Also, you you tend you tend to have a positive uh, view of humanity. You recognize that humans are 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 flawed beings, but you recognize you're a flawed being too. And you know, you don't you're you know you you are really interested more in what uh, unites us than divides us. So that's what I, that's what I mean by humanistic psychology. But yeah, humanism. I'm I'm on board with humanism as well, which is more about you know rational thought and but it's not exactly the same thing. You know, it's a okay. appreciation of science, appreciation of. Um, I don't know. Have you read Steven Pinker's book, The End The End of Enlightenment? Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm definitely on board with a lot of those things, and I think there's a lot of overlap for sure. But yeah. Have you shifted your view on you know the world's a friendly, happy, nice place recently? <laughs> given the shit show that 2020 has I been. really have and it's so it's so funny because it's such a great question it's such a great question because I have I I I have days where I am like you know what I I just want to like just impulsively tweet uh you know what I've changed my mind humans suck <laughs> Have you changed your mind that much <laughs> But I haven't here's the thing I'm saying I have my days I have my moments because I'm human because I'm human but then you know, and this is why I haven't tweeted that because I don't believe that to be true. Um, I believe part of part of being human is having our moments for sure. But I think I'll, I I I I I maintain my faith in humans because I'm constantly reminded of the goodness of humans when I look for it, and I think that's the point. The point is, or when I'm not trying to bring out the worst, and so on. It's very easy to see the worst in humans when you when you do all the things to activate someone's defense mechanisms. But it's also very easy to see the goodness in humans when 
you just truly listen to someone and you're just truly present with it, with another person and admire them for who they are on their own terms, not, not uh, what you can get out of them. Um, then you, then you start to have a little more faith in humanity. So, so that's why. Um, so yes, I mean, I definitely, this, this, let's put it this way. This moment has made me have more of my moments, <laughs> but I still, I still mean, does that make sense? But I still maintain my faith in humanity. Um, Okay, so you've you've managed to maintain it. Um, yeah, I, I've definitely gone through some stuff over the last couple of years where I'm like, I can't believe that anyone would do something that incredibly douchey. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then for me, the the kind of the the escape valve there is when right. I look really at the psychology of it. What people tend to do is they tend to be so unwilling to face the reality of what they're doing or what they've created, that they just make up a fake world where they didn't do that. And then they proceed as if that's the world that they're living in. And they're just unable to see that reality. And then you realize it's, I'm probably not gonna be able to pierce that reality bubble. And if I do, they're just going to feel pain. Uh, and, and there's kind of nothing left to be done there. So, so that's kind of so my true. people are basically good. If only they would see reality, they'd probably behave differently. How do you handle situations like that? So, so true. How do I handle situations within myself when that arises? Yeah, or how does one others? do it? But yeah, I'm, I'm assuming that you've studied this more than the average well, bear. So. I mean, I, I don't have any uh, secret of the universe to tell you in response to that. That, But I, I do think that we, there are so many ways we delude ourselves and and ways that we ha erect our defense mechanisms and 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 these mechanisms served us when we were young because we couldn't even imagine the unbearable pain that would happen if we were rejected by that girl you know <laughs> i don't know why that example come up but um you know but <laughs> that's a joke but um you know when when we're young you know there's all sorts of ways you know which we erect these defenses but when we become older we need to shed them you know we need to um we need to be grounded in reality as as firmly as possible if we're ever going to grow. And I'm a big believer that I'm a big believer that when it comes to social movements, um, I've I've been trying to advocate the value of science. Um, you know, I you know was, there's some activists and they'll say things and I'll be like, well, I don't think that's scientifically true what you're saying. Maybe your activism would actually be more valuable if you if you build it on a solid foundation of reality. You know, so um, so things like that. I, I think that it's really important to to confront reality in order to change or or acceptance. Okay, that that makes good sense. Hmm. I still don't know that I have the entire coping mechanism in place uh, for when when people you know completely are just living in a false reality, and you're like, wait a minute, mm. you say one thing, you believe what you're saying, yeah, but it doesn't match the numbers. And when when that kind of thing happens, it, it feels, you know, I've been talking with a bunch of other entrepreneurs about it, and you're like, wait a minute, it takes a while uh, because people like that, I, I don't think they're intentionally deceitful, but they tend to be very hard to spot. It, are there tricks to find when you're dealing with people like well, that? I think they're easy to spot. <laughs> you, think they're, you think they're hard to spot? Well, when they're easy to spot, you know, after three months of, of looking at results from a people like that. Uh, but someone, you know, who, who walks in and says, I'm great at what I do. I see what you're saying. And in a lot of ways, you're asking, how do, how do you spot a grandiose narcissist? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that, yeah. that's my question to a T. Mm. It's funny. I wrote a whole article. Um, do you know who Tucker Max is? 
yeah, he's a friend. He's also a, an odd and funny guy. Yeah. So um, I, I would say at one point we were friends. Uh, we just got out of touch. But yeah, but what, yeah, like about nine years ago or so, I was writing a, a cover story for Psychology Today. It was called How to Spot a Narcissist. And he was my main material. <laughs> like basically called, I called him up and I was like, how do I spot a narcissist? And so he gave me lots of really, he's, he's a very brilliant, very smart guy. Yeah. So, um, he gave me a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, he, he like reverse engineered the narcissist. And, and, and so it was like really interesting to kind of write a lot of this stuff down. Um, and I think that you can, in, in, in a lot of subtle ways and you, you realize that there's like a, uh, yeah, that reality distortion machine that people talked about with Steve Jobs, yeah. you know, you can start to pick up on that. Uh, you know, you can look at a history. I assume if you're doing hiring, you're going to look at a person's resume and be like, how many sort of failed uh, experiments were there there? How many like, um, you know, how many times did like an idea start and then it like immediately flopped, you know? Um I mean, th almost everything will eventually flop. Uh, that that's a whole other story. But 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 immediately immediately flopping, you know. Right. Um. So I don't know. I think there's. I think there are lots of ways of of spotting it, and also spotting it within ourselves. I think we're it's a continuum. I don't think there's. I don't, I don't believe in a world where there are narcissists and there are not narcissists. You know, we all have these tendencies within ourselves, and um, we often don't see them. Within our own self, we're also we're often deluding ourselves. So as we were talking, I have the ability to listen and type and stuff. I just took my light dark, and it says I'm Yoda. Is that <laughs> you were taking that test this whole time? Yeah, and um, I was listening yes. to everything you said. That's amazing. So yes, Yoda is uh, you're the on the light side. No, Yoda was an answer. I'm actually intrigued. Because it says I'm you know, twenty percent better on faith in humanity than average, or higher than average. Yeah, I'm good. totally average on humanism. Mm -hmm. I'm totally ha average on Kantianism. But okay. on the dark side, it says I'm twelve point four five percent more narcissistic there than you. the average. Yeah, no, that, that's great. And then what? What are the other two? Uh, I'm a little bit less psychopathic than the average. Yeah, and I'm twenty percent more Machiavellian. Which totally surprises yeah, me because makes I don't... complete sense. No, no, this is this makes complete. How do you get to where you are today with like not at least like ten to twenty percent higher narcissism and Machiavellianism? I think there's huge strengths in your in your specific case. I really do think you have to view these things in the whole context of the rest of the personality structure. So sure. I want to understand you as a whole, you know, and your whole personality structure. Well, um, I'll take the rest yeah. of the tests on it. That's only one of them. Yeah, and it's interesting because way back in my career, um, I was in my mid twenties and suddenly I'm attending senior executive leadership meetings and board meetings for a publicly traded company. And I'm generally not allowed to speak, <laughs> but you know, I, I'm watching all this and I came out of there just shaking my head going, these people are batshit crazy. Like nothing they do makes sense. Like I'm an engineer, I'm a nerd. I know how stuff works and what yeah. they're doing is pathological. And then I read 48 Laws of Power, Robert Greene's book. And I was oh, like, yeah, oh my God, it like opened my eyes because they were playing by a set of hidden world yeah. stuff that I didn't know how to see. And I learned how to see it from Robert Greene and he's been on the show and, and I've thanked him. But um, so so there, he's that great. was really the first time I ever realized how Machiavellian people were being towards me. Yeah. Um, even in a setting like that. And I, I think I developed some defenses, but I, it does surprise me that it thinks I'm more Machiavellian than average, but not particularly high either. So, 
Well, do you, if this makes you feel any better, the average score is low. So it doesn't even mean you're higher than 50%. You, you need to think about this properly. It doesn't, it doesn't it's even pretty mean, low, yeah. It doesn't even okay. mean you're high. It doesn't mean you're high in Machiavellianism. You know what I mean? That's not what that score means. Yeah. It's like if the average is like 2 and you're like 2.4, you're still low Machiavellianism. <laughs> Okay, I've already planned my next whole um, keynote speech thing. It's going to be like, I, f I thought I was a good person. And then I did this coffin sailboat yeah, test thing. And now it, it wounded my soul. And now, I'm entitled, now I'm entitled to be treated with extra respect. I, 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 thank you, man. You've empowered me. I've empowered you to, for special privileges. <laughs> That's hilarious. Because you found out you're entitled, because you found out your narcissism scores high. Well, you know, you got the Yoda. Look, like, can we? Let's. Fo it's amazing. It's psychology. The psychology of you and what you focused on with that test result. Yoda is what you got. So Yoda, what Yoda does is assesses the totality of your wholeness and then gives you the result, which is what I did. Not, not one specific facet of you. Wow, that was that was a massive piece of psychological ninjury. Ninja Uri. I like it. I like it. Well, tell me more about Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. Yeah. We talked about the main one, but what about the transcendent part of it? What, I, like, give that to me in a nutshell. I'm really intrigued at that. He had this theory. He had this theory Z. Um, so, McGregor, Douglas McGregor was an organizational psychologist in like the 60s, 70s, uh, argued that there's a theory X and theory Y that manage. It's, this was a management theory that uh, managers who hold a theory X in their workplace tend to be very carrot stick, you know, reward oriented. Those who hold a theory Y uh, idea in the workplace, workers uh, are motivated intrinsically. They just enjoy what they're doing. Right. But Maslow is like, I think there's like, there's a theory Z. Um, something higher where you don't, he, and then he distinguished between non-transcending self-actualizers and transcending self-actualizers. He called them the transcenders. And he tried to, we looked at the characteristics of the transcenders and, and, and he's like, you know what? You can be self-actualized. You can be a non-transcending self-actualizer. You can go to your nine to five job. You can be, you're a great coder, you know, like you, you have your work day and you figured out all the bugs in the code and you go home and go to sleep. You know, um, I don't know. That was probably a terrible example. And I just upset and pissed off coders for not including them in the class of transcending self-actualizers. But the point <laughs> I'm trying to make here before I get in trouble. Only the ones who do LSD when they code, then they're different. <laughs> if you do the LSD layer coding, now you're a transcender. Yes. There you go. That's right. That's right. Um, no, the, well, the, the, the difference between non-self-actualized transcenders, you know, you, you enjoy your job, you know, you feel good about it, and you feel like you're fulfilling, fulfilling your potential, but you just don't care at all about helping to fulfill the potential of society, you know? That just doesn't, that's not what, it doesn't, it's I your own. I love that, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, th there's a tribe of people out there, and I know because I'm one of them, and, and I, I connect with others like that, who actually give a, a lot of shits about that. Like, like that's a focus for them. And there's other people, it's just not what they're here to do. They're not. But like, yeah. I never thought of it that way. But yeah. you just, you kind of shined a flashlight on that for me. That's cool. Well, Matt, I want to give all the credit to Maslow for that. He he blew my mind when I when I read um, about, I, I mean, I literally read it in his journal articles. This stuff wasn't even published. He, he has a journal entry. I read um, this two-volume set. You can buy it on Amazon, but I think I'm the only one who ever bought it in, <laughs> on, um, anywhere. But I had, I read or read and or read it, um, you know, 
two that two volume two thousand his personal diaries and there's one entry you know in the middle of it where he says new insight today I think there's two types of self actualized I was like holy shit <laughs> wow just buried like, in there and yeah and I was like this is good shit <laughs> is anyone else seeing this <laughs> well it, it it's actually a really powerful technique to like let's go back to what our elders learned and learn yeah. from them. And there's just so much there that we can pick up and, and kind of stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, a, a lot of the biohacking stuff, especially get into the the weird states. Like, oh, yeah, they knew about that in the 13th century from meditating in caves for a while. Mm. And probably the, the guy who's most an example of that is Dan Brown, mm. where, you know, basically the father of attachment theory, but also, oh, yeah, let me go translate this Sanskrit text <laughs> <laughs> in the same human being like that just blew my mind when I got to talk to him. But you actually, nice. you also talk about attachment uh, in your book. Uh, what is the role of attachment and other things there when it comes to this new transcending level of Maslow's hierarchy? Sure. Uh, attachment I, I put in the set in the, in the boat itself. It's not part of the sale. It's okay. part of our security. You know, it's part of our um, grounding uh, we feel like we have a safe base that we can return to in times of need and that we trust that safe base. So if we, if we, our attachment style is insecure, we don't really, we don't trust our protectors very much, you know? And so we can, we can, I think we can be insecurely attached to our environment, not just our caregiver, caregivers, like, ma, you know, parents, but I also think we can live in a very distrustful environment um, where, you know, we don't trust anybody, you know, around us. We're cynical and we're cynical. About everybody. now, what what I, what what I'm really fearing is that this is what what America's become. But that's a whole other conversation. But but you I become cynical. I, you're saying, yeah, that we've become a nation of we're all distrustful, you know, with each other. Um, we we think everyone has an ulterior motive or a different intention, you know. Um, now everything you know is virtue signaling. You know, every everything has some sort of like you know alternative, more nefarious uh, reason than what people are doing. And I think that that's um, very interesting to me. And um, I think that it, it's it's almost it, it, it's it, the same analogy. We don't trust our protector, you know, like our president of the United States. You know, we don't we don't really tend to um, uh, feel as though or or just the virus. You know, we could just go to the virus level if you don't want to go to the more controversial political level. But, you know, we, we don't we, we're very fearful now. Of I'm wondering how the virus is going to vote. So I know that I should trust it or not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you can politicize a virus or something. Like that. That's it's why me. I was like, stick to the virus, Scott. Sense. Stick to the virus, Scott. <laughs> I don't want to piss off the Trump supporters. Um, but yeah, it's, but I feel like a lot of people in this country is a fact. I think it's a fact, whether or not you're whatever you're a fan of politically. You know, there's a lot of distrust in our leaders right now. Yeah. How would yeah. someone listening to this who's just feeling triggered as all hell? They're triggered yeah. if they see someone driving with or without a mask in a car. Okay, because yeah. both sides of that are triggering or triggered around politics. I mean, it's election time and all that. Is there a way to, to turn off the triggering so you can take a deep breath and look at the facts and just like not be emotional about it? That's a tricky one, my friend, because uh, on the, I'm going to do one of these on the one hand, on the other hand, then on the fourth <laughs> hand. Um, you know, like uh, I, this is how I feel about that question. On, on the one hand, the the caring hat that thinks... You know, I don't want to ever get to the point where I'm no longer 
emotionally affected by real injustices in the world. Like I never want to become the person who no longer feels or cares about the suffering of others. Okay. So that's the one hand. There's another hand that says, well, while we can hold that to be true, I think we can also hold to be true at the same time that I also don't want to be the one that's ruled by those feelings. I don't want to be the type of person that has no choice at all in whether or not I let that affect me and uh, cloud my seeing of reality. Uh, so I think that we just need to not go so much in the opposite direction where we don't, we no longer are outraged by anything that is important to be outraged because as Eric Fromm, the human psychologist said to be seen in an insane society is the highest marker of insanity. <laughs> um, so I don't ever want to go there, but at the same time, I do, I do think with meditation practices with certain, um, uh, spiritual practices of um, uh, even just philosophy, like I'm very into Buddhist philosophy and the the notion of non-attachment in Buddhist philosophy is actually very much in line with secure attachment in the psychological literature. So that's an interesting connection. Wow, that's actually some profound stuff right there. Because So non-attachment equals secure attachment? Yeah, in the the way Buddhist, uh, Buddhist, I'm very into Buddhist philosophy. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, I I get the sense you are too, by the way. But um, yeah, so like um, just the whole notion of of, of non-attachment is really about being so... Uh, secure in yourself in the, in the world that you aren't so influenced. You do have the separation between stimulus and response, you know, um, that you're not so reactive and anxious and fearful about everything. To get to that state, do you need to be kind of high up Maslow's hierarchy? Like I'm, I'm safe, I'm secure, I have enough food, I have enough money, no one's going to break down my door no, in no, order to even not. be non-attached? No, absolutely okay. not. But by the way, I thought you were going to just stop with after high, the word high. <laughs> do, you, do you need to be high? <laughs> I thought your answer was going to be cannabis to, to that question about <laughs> yeah. what does it take to be non-attached? I, was gonna answer, I mean, I would have answered that if you just stopped and put a period after the word high. But uh, no, I, I, I think that that's a myth. Um, because I do get sometimes, um, from various people who are well-meaning, you know, they're very into the social justice world and, and, uh, and they're fighting good causes, but they'll say things like, you know, Scott, you really, you can't even begin to, to study what you're studying until we've cured everything in the world, you know, all discrimination is gone. And, and, and the thing is, I don't, I think it's a false dichotomy. That's just a state of helplessness. Yeah. Well, I agree. The same thing people saying, well, you, you can't think about moving to a moon colony or to Mars or something right. until you fix everything right. on the planet. Fix everything on the like, planet. Yeah. 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 When someone hits that point of transcendence, that was you know, Maslow's hidden, um, you know, mm-hmm. hidden or, or unfinished work. How different from enlightenment is that? The Buddhist it, concept of enlightenment. Yeah. I mean, I have a, in my chapter on transcendence, on certain peak, I think it's called peak experiences. I have a whole chart I try to amass throughout the ages, uh, different terms and labels that different philosophical systems have used to talk about the same darn thing. Uh, I think it's the same thing. I mean, what Maz was talking about, trying to trying to get to, and this his theory Z worldview. You know, there's a whole theory Z worldview of wisdom um, and insight and into the human condition and into oneself. I think is very much in line with 78 other terms that um, that people have used. Some terms that were I never heard of them before, like love dash fire. Have you heard of that? <laughs> is it no. Where's that from? 
I don't know. Like I don't Jones know where I, or something. <laughs> I'd have to, to look up the source. <laughs> that was really dark. <laughs> You're funny. I'd have to look up the source, but there were all sorts of labels and terms and things. Like, I never heard of that one for that. But um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's. I think there's. I think I, I, scientifically, I think that there's a minimum number of actual phenomena underlining a massive amount of different words and labels, and you know, and every now and then you'll you know you'll get some person who's a good marketer will come up with their own new term for something which is the same darn phenomenon as has had been studied for millions of years but this amazing marketer has is able to put some word on it you know that like uh are like oh that's safukabuku he's right you know and it's like no actually a lot of other people have talked about that but yeah <laughs> personal development uh, pretty much everything that's said by modern, you know, just epic personal development people pretty much exists in some 14th century text somewhere on the planet. Like, like, we've been studying this for a long time. We just keep forgetting that we've been studying it's it. It's true. That's why I think it's so important to to the wisdom of our elders. You know, like this book, I couldn't have done it without Maslow. And I consider him a dear friend I'd never met. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I, you know what I hear in that is... Uh, Okay, I'm just blanking on his name. Um, Napoleon Hill, mm. uh, you know, think and grow rich. He, he talks mm. about cultivating a mastermind, not the kind of mastermind that we're all members of of these days, but a virtual mastermind in his head. So he'd sit and he'd recreate Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and whoever his other heroes were, and to the point they almost became real. And he'd have conversations and ask them what they yeah. think, and taught people how to do that. So, you know, you've, you've instantiated, you've created a virtual machine of a Maslow in, in your head that you can consult, it sounds like, which is kind of cool. I really did. I feel like I know exactly what he would say about everything. <laughs> yeah, well, you've you set him to that level, which is actually, uh, in Creepy. and of itself, a pretty unique thing to do. It's, it's cool. If I you was offer... that good at, yeah, sorry, go on, go. If I was that good at, like, you know, stalking in real life, you know, no, <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> Calm down. Yeah, not, it's a lot of work but, to stock in real yeah, life. You have to go yeah, places yeah. and take pictures and stuff. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I you, thanks for taking that as a joke. <laughs> yeah. Now, in in your book, you talk about practical tips for how to use the knowledge, which also I really appreciate as a fellow author. You know, mm. taking the academics and saying, "Now, here's what to do," is a great act of service for for readers. And I want you to share in this interview some of the practical tips, some of the exercises they have in the book that you think are most useful. Yeah, we have a whole set of growth challenges. Actually, I put up an online course I'm doing surrounding the book, where we we have people really go through these exercises and discuss them with each other and what and what it was like for them. Um, I, call, I call them growth challenges. Um, these aren't things that are necessarily going to make you happy. Again, we're going to go through the difference between happiness and right. growth. You know, but they're things that will help you grow. They really will, and they help you get outside your comfort zone. Um, so, exploring your dark side is a really important one. You know, where you really sit with your whole being and um and and try to even think about well how can i reframe this artificial distinction between positive and negative emotions like maybe we just have comfortable and uncomfortable emotions you know could these uncomfortable emotions serve my growth you know and in what ways could they um you know there's um, a whole sort of growth challenges to help you uh, uh make connections and have high quality connections with others um, there's different listening techniques. There's something called active, constructive, uh, responding technique. Um, there, there are actually things you can learn to, to be a good, a darn good listener. Um, uh, Carl Rogers, the the humanistic psychotherapist, called it active listening, um, uh, asking good follow up questions and and really um, showing that you comprehend 
what the other person's saying. You're you're quite good at that, um, for what it's worth. Thank you. Um, yeah, there's whole, there's a lot of growth challenges. You know, trying to seek out and live, just live and try to live more in the B realm of human existence. The Maslow called the being realm, um, where you seek out the beauty, you seek out um, the meaning. You, you actually sometimes you have to. You can't just accept and just assume that. Oh well, my life sucks, so therefore, um, it will. Everything sucks here around me, um, and there's no point in having agency. Don't ever lose that. There's no point in having agency. Don't lose that. Um, try to seek out the B realm as much as as you can. You know, uh, try to if it's going on a virtual. You know, you're feeling down. You you're like, I need beauty in my life right now. Try to seek out like, um, hopefully, if you have a computer, you know, a virtual tour, you know, of a museum or something, you know, or um, go out in nature as much as you can. Or um, or if you have a friend who's always nagging, you know, be like, look, I love you, but uh, I need a pause here. And then call up your friend who makes you come alive. Thank you for writing a cool book, actually writing a whole bunch of cool books. I'm gonna have to do all your other uh, all your other online tests so I can be more judgmental of myself. I'm, I'm really looking forward to all of the self-flagellation that will follow. It's, it's going to make me a better person. I know it. I expect good results. I'm having. I'm being more positive here. I'm <laughs> just messing with you. I know you are. I, I know. I uh, I actually really think that there's great. But value I'm a literal. But I'm literal. So you're literal. Too. I am. Yeah. Um, but there's there's great value, and we should actually name that URL again. I I have it in one of these windows here. It's uh, um. Well, your your main website is scottbarrykaufman.com, and it's on there, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Every, everything's there. Yep. And the name of your book is Transcend. And uh, this would have been a longer interview. It's been a lot of fun for me. Hopefully it was fascinating for all of our listeners. If you guys like this, um, there's stuff in Scott's book that is not um, not commonplace and worthy of consideration. So Thank this you. is a book that's, that's actionable, but it's also just a, an interesting read to just think about it. So thanks for taking the time to write it. Thank you so much for saying that and for having me on the show. It's so much fun talking to you. If you guys like the show, you know what to do. Read the book. And if you're ordering that book and you happened to go to fastthisway.com or order my new book, Fast This Way, that's not even out yet, then what will happen is every time people order Fast This Way, they'll see Scott's awesome book shown up right next on Amazon. Wow. And as always, if you read a book, you are required by state law now to actually leave a review for the author. Because if Five you stars. don't leave a review for the author, you're a bad person and you're 100% narcissist, Machiavellian, evil person on the scale. Am I right, Scott? It has to be five stars, though. That's the rule. That's oh, of course. Stars. Stars. Yeah. A, a five-star review, of course, of course. All right, guys, I'll see you on the next episode. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. 
This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.